0: You're listening to Radio Diaries. This is Joe, and I'm excited to tell you about the newest show in the Radiotopia family. It's called The Recipe with Kenji and Deb. I'm sure a lot of you listen to podcasts while cooking. Well, The Recipe is the podcast that'll teach you how to be a better cook with tips from two seasoned pros, pun intended. Hosted by Kenji Lopez-Alt of The Walk and Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen, the recipe not only lets you learn new recipes, but also teaches you techniques and secret ingredients that'll up your cooking from just okay to restaurant quality. So welcome them to the Radiotopia family. Find the recipe with Kenji and Deb right now, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Radio Diaries is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, Instead of spending weeks searching for talent, Indeed matches you with quality candidates that fit your job description. Plus, you can connect with candidates faster by scheduling interviews, screening, and messaging them all in one platform. So try it out. Listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash diaries. Just go to Indeed.com slash diaries right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Radiotopia.
1: From PRX.
0: From PRX's Radiotopia, this is Radio Diaries. I'm Joe Richman. Today we have a special episode. We're teaming up with NPR's Code Switch, a podcast on race, identity, and culture. You'll be hearing from them later in the show. But first, there's a long history in America of white people imagining black people's lives in novels, in movies, and sometimes in journalism. In 1969, Grace Halsall, a white journalist, published a book called Soul Sister. It was her account of living as a black woman in the United States. President Lyndon Johnson provided a blurb for the book, and it sold over a million copies. Halsell was inspired by John Howard Griffin's Black Like Me, which came out in 1961, and that was inspired by an even earlier book in the 1940s. It's hard to imagine any of these projects happening now. It seems almost like journalistic blackface. But Halsell's book raises a lot of questions that are still relevant today, about race and the limits of empathy. This is the story of Soul Sister.
2: How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? My name is Wesley South, and this is The Hotline. Tonight, we have a guest. Grace Halsell is a white woman who turned herself
3: black and went to live and work in Mississippi. First question I'd like to know is just what
4: made you go through this experience?
1: Well, first, I don't think any white person can really ever imagine what it is to be black in this country. I certainly
5: didn't know. A white woman changes her whole body, brown, for six months? My name is Alicia Gaines. I'm the author of Black for a Day, White Fantasies of Race and Empathy.
3: My name is Robin Kelly, and I'm writing the biography of Grace Halsell. I've gotten a lot of flack, actually, for writing this book. It's like, why would a black man write a book about this white woman who tries to pretend to be black?
2: How did you change your color from white
3: to
5: black?
1: Well, I did it with a medication, pills that one can
5: take. She She's prescribed vitiligo corrective treatment. That basically allowed her skin to absorb more sunlight.
1: I could see a very drastic change just day by day. And on the ninth day, I actually saw a
5: black woman, and she was me. She also got custom colored contacts made to change her eyes to make them look darker. And she put on a shabby dress and tied a kerchief over her hair, and off she went on her adventure.
1: Soul Sister by Grace Halsell. I will no longer carry my identity card that has always provided me with special status, white American, member of the club. I will be going to a black country, beseeching, let me come in, accept me as one of you, a black among blacks.
2: This is the address, 291 Roosevelt Street, where Grace Housel lived when she was here in Indianola. My name is Carver A. Randall. I knew ahead of time why she was here. I was president of NAACP in Sunflower County, Mississippi. Best I recall, she was about five seven. Her skin was real rough and deep brown. You know, I thought it was strange in 68, posing as a black woman. It was dangerous. If the white community found out who she was and what she was about, she could have been killed very easily. And if somebody engaged in something that they know is dangerous, to me, that's either a fool or a brave person. In my opinion, she was a little of both. One, two,
1: three. This is Tuesday, November the 19th.
3: When Grace was doing the research for Soul Sister, she used a cassette recorder and she would record her thoughts.
1: I was uh, struck very forcefully riding on the bus yesterday. White people never seem to see the Negro. That's like uh, being tuned out completely.
3: And she would record interviews with the people she meets.
1: Tell me a little bit about what you were saying. They treat you uh, well, you're black
2: and you're just going to have to be back here. This is your place here.
1: I, I'd like for you to tell me just how you got started in the movement.
2: Well, I can hardly remember a time that I really well, wasn't involved.
1: White people always come along and kick you around and wish that the Negro people are not going to take any anymore off of nobody. Uh-huh. And I have everyone tell her name. Joyce Moulton, 16. Uh-huh. My name is Joyce Moulton. Catherine, you tried to make me say yes,
2: sir, or no, sir to him. Grace interviewed me
1: in 1968.
2: I mean, Guess what? I thought she was black. Yes, I didn't know Grace was white until yes, I read the book.
1: Yes, wow. Yes,
3: Hello, Grace.
1: <laughs>
3: in addition to interviewing and hanging out with people, she participates in a number of demonstrations, Uh, she comes up with this idea of trying to integrate a white church.
2: And uh, she wanted to take some young black people with her. They went in the church and they stopped the whole service.
1: It seems illogical and ridiculous that one can be arrested for going to church. But I know that in Indianola, it is possible.
3: Grace also gets a job as a domestic worker, basically cleaning white women's homes.
2: She can make all the white folks' beds, wash all the dishes, the dirty clothes.
1: Long before I have one job completed, there are new orders. Now sweep off the front porch, the side porch, the back porch, and mop the back porch.
3: She ends up working for a family called the Wheelers, and it's a key moment. She was working, and the white lady had went somewhere, and the husband was at home.
5: He called her upstairs, and when she got up there, he tried to rape her. So she kind of wiggles an arm free and is able to pull the family portrait down onto Mr. Wheeler's head, and that gives her enough time to escape. Ultimately, she went back to whiteness after this incident. The project is over. She goes back home to Washington, D.C. and begins writing Soul Sister.
1: W-G-R-T, the now sound of Super Soul in Chicago.
2: Welcome to Rap Session with your host, Daddy Daly.
3: Our guest today is Miss Grace and Grace. When the book came out, and it was a runaway bestseller. White liberals and a surprising number of black people praised the book but it was also very controversial. 372-0766 is the number to
4: call if you'd like to speak to our guest. And uh, you're on the air, hello. Oh, Miss Hossel, when you went to uh, Mississippi and changed the color of your skin, was this for a personal gain or why did you do
2: this?
1: I did it to learn what it's like. I know black people don't have anything to learn from this book because you know what being black is like. Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. But I'm hoping that white people can relate to me and identify with me and live through my experiences. And as I
5: Remember, Soul Sister comes out in 1969. We are now firmly in a black power moment. And by 1970, we've got Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye. We've got Toni K. Bombara's The Black Woman black women are writing about themselves. And so Halso's timing was just off. This is
1: a hotline. Hello? Uh,
5: Ms. Halsell, I have some serious misgivings about your book. I cannot really believe that any white person would not know how Negroes are treated
1: than if the white people who are doing the treating, doing the mistreating. May I have your comment on that, please? Believe me, my intentions are good. Believe me, I didn't do it to make
3: money. My name is Dorothy Gilliam, and I was the first African-American female reporter at the Washington Post. In 1969, I was asked to review Soul Sister. I wrote these words. I am instantly repulsed by the audacity of Miss Halsell after a few months of a half-masquerade to call herself Soul Sister. Her motivations were were probably quite positive, trying to stir up empathy. But I think she was just so
5: imbued with her whiteness that uh, she didn't understand anything. As a black person reading Soul Sister, it's deeply uncomfortable because she traffics in so many stereotypes. She also assumes that black womanhood is nothing but a story about suffering.
2: Let's continue, Grace. May I call you Grace? Yes, please. The mentality of the man who attempted to rape you. Tell me a little about that.
1: Well, the thing that was so uh, really horrifying to me as a black woman was the way white men looked at me.
3: Now, the problem is, as I dig through the archival record, through her own papers, it became clear to me that the story of a white man nearly raping her probably never happened. She was a copious note-taker. She took notes on everything. And there's no notes, there's nothing about this encounter. It doesn't pop up until she's writing the book. I think that this was a story invented after she had done her research and collected her data. You know, she'd heard stories about this. So in the book, how can she convey it unless it happens
5: to her? That's my theory. I don't think we'll ever really know if that did or didn't happen. I will say this. I have always thought that the attempted rape scene was very convenient. But at the end of the day, women are often accused of making up these types of stories, even when we don't.
3: And I say we have to discontinue this. We're about a minute or Despite some of our listeners, uh, they have a right sure, to express views. Sure, very I good say, point. Good luck to you on Soul Sister.
5: Thank you.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, tomorrow night uh, we will be
0: discussing...
3: After Soul Sister, Grace continued to return to the book as a
5: model. She publishes Bessie Yellowhair. In that book, she has turned herself into a Navajo woman. She then writes The Illegals,
3: as a Mexican undocumented worker. She found her calling, I guess. She published 11 books. They're all about what it means to live in other people's shoes and other people's lives, and that's part of what she thought about as empathy. I think what she did for all the faults was a courageous thing.
5: Courageous? I would call her adventurous. Grace Household deeply believed that if we all understood each other, then racism will be over. But that's not how this works. The problem with empathy is that it's seductive enough that people think it's enough. I think
3: I may be the only scholar on the planet who's somewhat sympathetic to Grace also. Grace made a choice to run toward the minefield of race rather than run away.
1: Nothing in my experiences prepared me for going to the South as a black woman. And why do I say I couldn't do it again? Because now I know what it cost me, psychologically, to bear for one minute in time what every black American bears all his life. Discrimination. Segregation. Injustice.
2: I need to go back and read that book again. I like Grace. But I don't think Grace had a notion of what it was like to live as a black person. No way. (laughs) No way. I've been black all my life. You know, there's a lot I don't know about me.
0: Grace Hossell died in August of 2000 at the age of 77. She left most of her estate, including the royalties for Soul Sister, to Howard University, the historically black university in Washington, D.C. We want to thank everyone we interviewed for this story, but especially Carver Randall, the former head of the Sunflower County, Mississippi, NAACP. For more than 50 years, Randall was a civil rights leader in his community. He died a few months after we interviewed him. As we said at the top for this episode, we teamed up with NPR's Code Switch to dive deeper into the story of Soul Sister. and we're doing something a little different today. We're passing the mic over to the hosts of Code Switch, Gene Denby and Shereen marisol Meraji. Gene?
1: Shereen,
4: Code Switch. So as you heard, Alicia Gaines and Robin Kelly were trying to make sense of these exploits that Grace Halsell undertook and her sojourns into blackness. And Alicia wrote a book called Black for a Day, White Fantasies of Race and Empathy. And that book looks at a bunch of different white people who have forayed into blackness.
1: A bunch of different white people who have forayed into blackness. I just needed to repeat that.
4: Bunch. (laughs) More than one. Uh, And Alicia, who was a professor at Florida State, she writes about the period of Hazel's life that's depicted in Soul Sister, specifically.
1: Mm-hmm. But
4: Robin, who is a professor at UCLA, his forthcoming book looks at the wider sweep of Grace Hazel's life. So I got a chance to pick their brains about what Grace Hazel's escapades sought to accomplish when it came to racial justice and whether they thought she accomplished them. Here's Alicia.
5: It's a good question. It's a question I'm still wrestling with i think that when we sort of wholeheartedly embrace empathy as a solution to racial justice mm, that's not enough and often we don't talk about sort of the power dynamics that uh, happen when you're trying to stand in someone else's shoes or in the case of household literally standing in someone else's skin i think that the empathetic impulse can be useful when it mobilizes an action or um, mobilizes actual solidarity. But when it's just sort of, oh wow, I really feel deeply about that thing, I'm really trying to understand, and now I do, I'm th- that's the failure to me.
3: I don't think Soul Sister produced much empathy on the part of the audience she was trying to reach, which was white readers. And the unfortunate thing about the way the story is told is you don't actually get deep into the way that black people as a collective, uh, you know, dealt with each other, dealt with the movement, dealt with the modes of oppression. So she comes out of it with a wrong-headed understanding of what's the problem. Hmm. Part of the problem is, you know, empathy itself doesn't always produce a moral response. Hmm. You know, and this is Paul Bloom wrote this book called Against Empathy— He makes many claims, but the most important might be that we have limited capacity for feeling the pain of others. What we do is we tend to identify not with collectives, not with movements, but with individuals, Mm -hmm. and we, we then identify with those individuals, which then reinforce exclusion. It could reinforce racism, it could reinforce sexism, ethnocentrism. And in the case of Grace also, or maybe all these kinds of racial experiments, part of Bloom's argument is that we're not able to sort of literally step outside of ourselves and our subjectivity to become someone else. What we do is we lob onto those people we identify with. Um, one of the brilliant things that Alicia talks about in her book, for example, is the way that Grace so pathologized sexuality and gender, specifically because there are these queer characters who come up in her story. And she comes to this really bizarre conclusion that The lesbians with whom she's living in this guest house and the trans man who's working in the restaurant are somehow denied the right to be real men and real women because of racism. That is, her attempt to identify with the other still depends on identifying with herself in the other. That is, a cisgender, heterosexual
5: white woman as a black woman. Robin brings up out of a out of a very weird book one of the weirder moments, mm-hmm. um, which is she kind of looks around this guest house and realizes, oh, my god, these are lesbians. Um, <laughs> and in, in so doing she basically like says that they're not real men and women because of racism and then kind of dismisses queer black folks as not being authentically black. She does this move again. When she is working in Harlem Hospital and the other secretaries are too, you know, kind of class aspirational and they're too much like white people and she wants to find authentically black people, so she goes to Mississippi. Hmm. But there's this constant, like, as Ryman was saying, if she can't find the exact facsimile or copy of herself in the black women that she's meeting or encountering, then she kind of dismisses them. By the way, I should mention
3: that her time in Mississippi amounted to little less than three weeks so she was in and out she was in and out she only really worked as a domestic for two days altogether mm-hmm. her time in harlem came out to i think i calculate about four weeks she spent as much time in the virgin islands darkening herself as she spent in harlem wow so it's not like she spent a year or six
4: months you know it wasn't like a deep dive she was just a tourist Basically, yes,
3: a tourist. And again, the Mississippi experience was sharply different from the New York experience. Though, in New York, she tells a story about showing up with $20 in her pocket and a shabby dress and trying to live like a black woman. Well, as soon as she got there, she deposited $200 in her bank account at Freedom (laughs) National Bank. $200 in 1969 money. Oh, yeah, in 1968. (laughs) (laughs) And then a couple of times... You know, she would leave her apartment or, or boarding house or guest house and go to the Upper East Side and she was having an affair with Peter Lissagore, the very famous Washington Post journalist. And so she'd spend the night with him, and there's one letter she wrote where she talks about how she's in this luxury hotel with Peter Lissagore, and she looks in the mirror, she sees herself dark, and she just hated herself. Wow. You know, that's not in the book. <laughs> oh, but how she was so ugly and would he find her attractive? So she was able to escape and find some respite among the sort of suffering she talked about uh, in Harlem.
4: it's reminds me one of those jokes you always hear folks say, like, you couldn't survive a month in my skin. You know what I mean? <laughs> she literally right. had to, like, take a self-care break and just opt out. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> wow. Alicia, has anyone who has tried to do this done this? like relatively respectfully and thoughtfully
5: <laughs> um <laughs> i mean i I'm, i i know i sound like a cynic but i don't think so there is a horrible like reality tv show in 2006 which i talk about in the book called black white and it's two families one black one white and they like switch races like hollywood style prosthetics and makeup and there there's a brief moment where the born white (laughs) daughter rose
1: i've never experienced what it's like to be treated black
5: has this conversation with her mother and she's just realizing that this ain't it this (laughs) the (laughs) fact that she's you know black and that she's got this newly textured hair and she's learning slam poetry she realizes in the project this is not how we're connecting like this is not understanding. She's like, I am briefly flirting with an understanding, but there's so much I'm realizing that I just won't know. Mm -hmm. And it's like the closest someone who's done this that I've talked about gets to making that declaration very clear. Mm -hmm. I mean, this only happens after a few days of this. She later outs herself to her slam poetry class and tells him, like, look, I'm a white girl. I can't do this. And so that kind of level of self-awareness was helpful. But I don't think many of them are pulling this off thoughtfully. I mean, you can think about where I end the book with Rachel Dolezal. I mean, she's still out here in these streets.
4: I was hoping we were going to get this whole thing without booking the name. Of course we can't. (laughs) Of course we
5: can't. She's still hanging on after the critiques, after her own sons are kind of begging her to stop. And to me, it's just the ultimate evidence of white privilege is just to, in the face of critique, keep doing it.
4: It seemed like a central point of disagreement between the two of you is whether or how much Grace Halsell's motives mattered in the end. But it doesn't actually sound like y'all are that far apart on this. So,
3: in some ways, I actually don't think her motives matter if we isolate her story to Soul Sister. To me, um, Soul Sister was unintentional, but it became a way to think about colonialism. Hmm. And the analogy of colonialism became the window, the framework, for her to understand the reservation, the barrio, the border, and later the occupied territories in the West Bank. That's, to me, where the motivation matters. But when you actually get to her within that bubble of Soul Sister, her motivation was complicated. Some of it was for money. Mm-hmm. because she was struggling. Some of it was for um, for fame. Some of it was, you know, she starts out saying, like, I'm trying to write this for white people, but then when she talks to her publicist, Olafield Dukes, who's black, she's a whole black team of publicists, she's like, I want the black people to love this book. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> and she feels bad when people in Chicago come out and protest after the Ebony article comes out mm-hmm. excerpting the book, And she's like, well, what's wrong? What did I do, you know? And so I think she was confused even about her own motivation. And it didn't become clear until really toward the end of her life.
4: Hmm. How did it become clear at the end of her life? I don't want to spoil your book, but...
3: Oh, no, it's nothing to spoil. I wish you could help me finish it. Um, (laughs) You know, toward the end, I think on the one hand, she recognized the limits of trying to walk in someone's shoes, the limits of empathy that really there can't be no radical empathy. But at the same time, she began to pull back with the lens away from herself, away from the individual, and began to think more about structure and think more about economy. And so one of the things she did late in her life was she went to Bosnia and she interviewed all these women who were raped. You know, it's very, very difficult work. And I think that her experience with Soul Sister and the mistake she made helped her become a better journalist, a better listener, and to sort of become less Hmm. self-referential.
4: Alicia, you sort of look more narrowly at the experiment itself. So I'm curious as to what you make of this question about her
5: motives. I mean, I definitely don't think that Rob and I are um, as oppositional as maybe the piece suggested. I do narrow down on Soul Sister, and so it's easy to critique Soul Sister. It's not a good book. It's a weird thing. I mean, (laughs) and I agree with Robin that if you look at the longer trajectory of her life and definitely her later work, she is talking about system structures and institutions in a way that I'm very critical of the fact that she doesn't in Soul Sister. Hmm. So I do believe that Soul Sister is sort of the beginning of developing awareness and consciousness around these things, but... That's not my book, (laughs) so (laughs) I get to talk about Soul Sister, which is just, it's ridiculous. I mean, just like Black Like Me is ridiculous. And some of the conclusions that she makes in it, you're like, okay, that's, I mean, that's not very helpful, especially at this political moment. Black women are already writing about being black women, even though she is supposedly writing this book for women like her, that she could be using that privilege in a different way. Mm -hmm. I do think that her motive in the case of Soul Sister matters, and I do think it's complicated. I mean, she talks about wanting a personal experience. She talks about wanting to sort of open herself up to you know, what she's going to find out about herself. So I think that's part of it, too. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. But then that she can just take a rest from it when she feels like it in the Upper East Side in a nice hotel. Black folks don't get that luxury or option.
1: Yes, that is a very good point, Alicia.
4: It is a good point. Although, I mean, if we do reparations, let's get on this. Uh, these hotel rooms in the Upper East Side. You know what I mean? Put that in the package. <laughs> So there was one other part of this Radio Diaries piece that I wanted to get into with Robin and Alicia. Shireen, you remember at the top, they're talking about the end of Soul Sister, where Grace Halsell describes this white guy who tried to sexually assault her.
1: Yes. Uh, And there was some tension over whether or not that story was true.
4: Right. Uh, Robin wondered whether that incident happened exactly the way that Housel described them in the book or if it happened at all, which is a pretty heavy assertion, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. So I asked him to expound on what he meant.
3: There's a little bit of question on my part, at least, about when and how and if that particular incident happened or if she was trying to convey the story of someone else to create that narrative arc where the final sort of coup de grace is that
4: escape
3: from a rapist who's white.
4: And so you think that that was like a writerly embellishment?
3: Well, you know, I want to be real careful here because, you know, this is not about whether I believe Grace or not believe her. Because there's evidence in the book I'm writing where she's been sexually assaulted before this. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's quite possible this could have happened, no question. But there's some other pieces of the story, like the fact that... It happened in Clarksdale, and she was only in Clarksdale for one day, and that's the same day she was meeting with Aaron Henry. Hmm. It happened with the one person who has a pseudonym but no actual name. Hmm. She has no notes on the event. But what she does have a lot of notes on is her interview with Nanny Tubbs, who basically talks about the violence that domestic workers face every day. So now, it could have happened. It probably didn't happen in Clarksdale, like she says. But it's quite possible that if it didn't happen to her because she only worked 2 days as a domestic if it didn't actually happen to her she had enough evidence to be able to get that story in there because it is the truth right there's a truth to that that kind of violence it's not like it's fictional it's really true but it really makes a perfect narrative arc as a kind of liberal anti-racist to be able to say you know what my fears were unfounded I found in Harlem a community of loving people, people who cared about each other and about me.
5: I don't think we'll ever really know no, but if you take the text, and kind of think of it as a narrative arc, it makes sense how she would put that in there if she's trying to name something that's happening to the Black domestic workers that she's talking to, but didn't necessarily happen to her then or in the way that she describes. There's a way in which it neatly kind of, almost too neatly for me actually when I was reading it, kind of wraps things up and then makes the exit back to whiteness kind of makes it feel inevitable in a way.
3: My worry is that to pose the question may open the door for questioning everything she writes. But to me, the irony is that sometimes the fiction is the most authentic. Mm -hmm. What didn't happen may be even more authentic than what did happen. Mm -hmm. In terms of her trying to project another life, not her
4: own. Alicia Gaines is the author of Black for a Day, White Fantasies of Race and Empathy. And she's the Timothy Gannon Associate Professor of English at Florida State University. Robin D.G. Kelly is a professor of history and African-American
0: studies at UCLA. Thank you both so much. Thank oh, you're you. You're
5: welcome. Okay. Thank you.
0: That was NPR's Code Switch with hosts Gene Denby and Shreen Marisol Meraji. Codeswitch, by the way, is doing some of the best reporting about race and culture in America today. If you don't already listen, you should subscribe right now on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can join the conversation on Twitter at NPR Codeswitch and follow us at Radio Diaries. Our story, Soul Sister, was produced by Sarah Kate Kramer with help from me, Joe Richman, and Nellie Gillis. It was edited by Deborah George and Ben Shapiro. Actress Susan Bennett read the excerpts from Soul Sister. Special thanks to Ali Post, our former Radio Diaries intern, who first brought Grace Hossell's story to our attention. We want to thank Andrea Hsu at All Things Considered, Yoe Shaw and Visibilia and Kai Wright at The Stakes, Leo Danella, and the entire team at NPR's Code Switch, thanks to them, and thanks to the residents of Indianola, Mississippi. Radio Diaries is part of the Radiotopia Network from PRX. You can hear all the shows at radiotopia.fm. I'm Joe Richmond of Radio Diaries. Thanks for listening.
3: And I say we have to discontinue this. We're about a minute over. Despite some of our listeners, uh, they have a right well, to express their Sure, very I good say, point. Good luck to you on Soul Sister.
1: Thank you. Radiotopia.